you know, in the church leadership world, there can sometimes be debate about, let's say, hypothetically, one of your church members wins the Powerball. Does the church take the money or not? Well, we know where Carl stands. <laughs> take the money. Take the money. So we're glad that you're here at Prairie View this morning. Thankful that you have come to worship with us. As we started reading the Gospel of Luke last week, we got an introduction into who this Jesus that Luke writes about really is. As Luke writes to Theophilus, a man who seems to have some questions, potentially some doubts about the Christian faith, Luke stresses over and over again that Jesus is God's son. It's seen in the story of Jesus' birth, where he's born of a virgin, not the offspring of Joseph. It's seen in the temple response from the 12-year-old Jesus when Joseph and Mary come and say, where have you been? Jesus says, I had to be in my father's house. It's stressed in Jesus' baptism when God's voice proclaims that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Not Joseph's son. My beloved son. It's stressed in Jesus' genealogy in chapter 3, verse 23, where Luke almost sarcastically mentions that people supposed he was Joseph's son. It's even seen in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. When Satan more than once says, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. The point is that Luke doesn't want Theophilus. He doesn't want you. He doesn't want me to have any doubt about who this story is really all about, who the main character of his narrative is. But he also doesn't want us to have any doubt of this person's true identity. So before we take a single step further down this journey, down this path with Jesus, Luke stresses that Jesus is the Son of God, the true, only begotten Son of God, walking amongst us in the flesh. And once Luke has clarified that, that's when the journey with Jesus can truly begin. So as we move forward today, we're going to cover several significant stories on this journey. You might say that this is an introduction of sorts to Jesus's ministry. Each one of these passages could potentially be its own sermon. But for the first time in the Gospel of Luke, this morning, we see Jesus publicly announce and publicly embrace that his mission from God has truly begun. And in the process of Jesus announcing that, we start to learn something about what we mentioned last week. We start to learn a little something about what it means for Jesus to be all about his father's business. So with that, open your Bibles to Luke chapter four, verse 16. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 734. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you before you leave today. But Before we do any reading, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time of year where it can be very easy to be discouraged or just be a little bit down because of the dark days and the cold weather and the snow. But God, even in that, your beauty is seen, your power is seen. And I pray that you would just help us to recognize that even during the dark and gray and cloudy days of January. Father, thank you that your son Jesus was born, that your son Jesus lived that your son Jesus died, that he rose, and that he ascended to be with you, and that one day he will return. And God, we anxiously look forward to that day, and we long for that day to come. But in the meantime, God, we love you, 
we seek to honor you and praise you and glorify you. And may we do that this morning as we read your word and as we leave here after the service is over. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, starting in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? As we read those words from Jesus, that announcement in the synagogue, you can't stress enough how important this passage is, not just for what we're talking about this morning, but really for the entire Gospel of Luke. As you look at these words, verses 16 through 22, you might call these words Jesus's mission statement. You could call them his career objectives. And as he thinks about his mission, as he announces what he's come to do, he specifically cites Isaiah 61. Now, Isaiah 61 was a passage that talked about God's people finally being back on top, finally being back in power. Isaiah mentions things like vengeance upon their enemies. He mentions a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. No more mourning. Instead, you're going to be people of royalty. Isaiah mentions that the Israelites' ancient ruins would be built back up. That foreigners, Rome, would be plowing their fields, serving them. That the Israelites would be eating the wealth of the nations. Now, if you're an Israelite... And you've been oppressed for a long time. You've been tired of toiling under Roman rule. That's pretty exciting stuff. That's a big claim. That's the kind of stuff that gets people pumped up and excited. But then Jesus looks at them and says, and oh yeah, by the way, I'm the one who's going to do it. Now, if you're one of those people in the synagogue, you can't be blamed for thinking, really? You? I mean, you're the one who's going to accomplish this. I mean, aren't you just the son of a carpenter? I mean, we were expecting someone a little more macho, maybe a little more impressive, maybe someone with an actual military behind them, because it's not going to be easy to take down Rome. But Jesus doesn't seem to be focusing so much on that part of it. He seems to focus particularly on two aspects of that Isaiah 61 passage. That phrase, proclaiming good news to the poor, preaching good news to the poor. As we read through the Gospel of Luke, we learn that preaching and teaching will be a core part of Jesus's ministry. Just a few verses later, when people are paying lots of attention to Jesus, they're seeing all these big, flashy, impressive miracles. He reminds them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. 
for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus never pretends that he's just a miracle worker. He's not just a circus act. He's not just there to do some really cool stuff and make people ooh and ah. He's there to preach the kingdom of God. Now, when you hear that phrase, the kingdom of God, what do you think Jesus means there? We hear that phrase, the kingdom of God, and maybe we think, okay, maybe Jesus is talking about heaven. Some faraway place up in the sky, that's the kingdom of God, and maybe if we're lucky, we get to go there when we die. Maybe we hear that phrase, the kingdom of God, and we think, okay, well, that's the church. That's kind of the kingdom of God today. But actually, the kingdom of God is much bigger than that. The kingdom of God is that feeling you get when you look around at the world, and something deep inside you just screams that things aren't the way they're meant to be. On this weekend when we celebrate Sanctity of Life, it's that feeling you get when you look at the world and you see the injustice done to the unborn. And you say, you know, something's just not right. On this weekend when we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr., you look around at the world and you still see racism as a pervasive problem in so many areas of life. And you say, you know what? Something's just off. Something's just not right. Something is wrong. That's the kingdom of God. That sense that God's people get back then and we still get today that as we look around us, something just isn't right. But the promise of Jesus that the kingdom of God is coming and has come through him. Well, that gives us hope that even though things aren't right right now, they won't be that way forever. That things will be different when Jesus returns. Now, his target audience in this preaching of the kingdom of God, his target audience is the poor. Now, you and I hear that phrase and we think, okay, people who don't have money, people who don't have food, people who don't have water or shelter. Well, it's actually bigger than that. Although those people would certainly be included too. When he mentions the poor, he can be referring to anyone who is an outcast for any reason, anyone who's oppressed. Whether it's because of their age, their sex, their race, their background, their education, their physical ailments, whatever. All of the above. For those people, the kingdom of God is good news. The kingdom of God, quite frankly, isn't good news for people who think they have it all together already. And it really isn't good news for people who think they don't need any help. It really isn't any good news for people who seem to have everything exactly where they want it to go and they don't need anyone's charity. Honestly, that's not who the kingdom of God is really for. He focuses a lot on that part about proclaiming liberty to the captives. Some translations may say releasing the captives. Now, what is Jesus talking about there? I mean, we know from Scripture and from history that Jesus wasn't just your average abolitionist. He wasn't some guy going around sneaking slaves away from their masters. So what does he mean, proclaiming liberty to the captives? He must have something bigger in mind. But before we get into that, step back, go back to the synagogue, this place where Jesus has made this announcement from Isaiah 61. Some people are marveling at the gracious words that come from his mouth, but you have to think others are skeptical. 
They're the ones sitting back and saying to all these excited people, all these people who are prisoners of the moment. Now, hold on a minute. Let's wait. Let's just relax. I mean, think this through. Why should we believe that this guy is the anointed one? Why should we believe that this guy is the Messiah? I mean, heck, we were the ones who changed this kid's diapers. I mean, what kind of authority does he have to make a statement like that? Who does he think he is? Well, in the verses following, we see Jesus prove his power and prove his authority to take Isaiah 61 and make it about him. First example, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. So the first example, Jesus' credibility to make the announcement he made in the synagogue. Well, Jesus' power over demons. You know, you read a passage like this, and there's a sad irony in the words of the demons. There's a sad irony to the fact that these demons in the Gospel of Luke, these workers of Satan, they will consistently refer to Jesus as the Son of God, the Holy One of God, the Christ. It's so sad that others in Luke's Gospel, they won't show Jesus that same respect. They'll refer to Jesus as the son of Joseph, the carpenter's son, the would-be Messiah. They would jokingly refer to him as the king of the Jews. It's sadly ironic when you see a passage like this and think, you know, these demons have a better understanding of who Jesus is than some of my friends and some of my coworkers and some of my neighbors and some of my family members. It's a sobering reality to consider that. Now, you also read a passage like this involving a demon being cast out, and we sit back and think, okay, they clearly didn't have the medical knowledge we have. They didn't have the medical know-how or technology that we have today. If only they were as smart as we are, they would know better than to think that these were demons. They would think that this was just some mental illness that they didn't really understand. Well, that's not really what we see here, is it? We see something different. We see a verbal exchange between Jesus and the workers of Satan. That's not just some mental illness. Satan is actively opposing what Jesus is doing in the world. But nonetheless, the demons are cast out. The man is unharmed. The people are amazed. And the news begins to spread. Let's jump forward to verse 38 of chapter 4. 
And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. I have to think sometimes, was Simon appealing on her behalf or was Simon saying, you know what, Jesus, she had a great run. Just, just let it go. Verse 39. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So not only does Jesus cast out demons, but Jesus has power over illness. Simon's mother-in-law has a fever, but to make it all go away, Jesus just simply has to talk. Again, you notice that Luke differentiates between a regular old illness, a cough or a cold or a fever, and demonic activity in the man before. They can tell the difference. They know that one thing is a fever and one thing is the work of Satan. And yet again, after Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law... News spreads. More and more people come. More and more people bring their friends, bring their family with demons, with illnesses, in hopes that somehow Jesus can help them. Now again, put yourself back at Nazareth, back at the synagogue. Those people who were skeptical, those people who were a little bit hesitant to jump on the Jesus bandwagon right away. They might be hearing about all this stuff happening and thinking, you know what? Not bad, kid. That's pretty impressive. But you got any more to show us? Got any more reason for us to believe that you really are the anointed one? That you're going to bring about God's kingdom? Well, chapter 5, starting in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places And pray. So the third proof of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, that claim from Isaiah 61, it's his power over leprosy. Now, I mentioned this apart from Jesus' power over illness seen in the healing of Simon's mother-in-law of her fever, because, quite frankly, the effects of leprosy, they were worse than the effects of a fever. Back then, leprosy wasn't just some physical illness. It wasn't just some bodily problem. It went a whole lot deeper than that. Leprosy is a social illness. It's the kind of thing where if you have leprosy, people don't want to be around you. And if people don't want to be around you, then people aren't going to shop at your business. And if people don't shop at your business, then you're not going to have any money. And if you don't have any money, then your kids aren't going to eat. It's not just physical consequences with leprosy. It's social consequences, too. And then on top of that, there are religious consequences. If you have leprosy, you're unclean. And if you're unclean, then you can't fulfill your religious duties. And if you can't fulfill your religious duties, that includes going to the temple. And if you can't go to the temple, 
and offer the right sacrifices, then you can't be in right standing with God. And if you're not in right standing with God, well, you've got a whole lot more to worry about than just dry skin. But here's the thing. This leper recognizes something that unfortunately far too many people often don't. This leper recognizes that Jesus, well, he's in the business of helping people like him. It's his father's business. He's in the business of setting captives and setting the poor and setting outcasts and setting even lepers free. Proclaiming liberty to people like this guy. So Jesus stretches out his hand. He touches the leper that no one else even wanted to talk to. And Jesus cleanses him. He heals him physically, socially, and religiously. You know, back then, a lot of people would say, if Jesus touched a leper, then that would make Jesus unclean. Well, the exact opposite happens. Jesus touches a leper, and instead, the leper is cleansed. And just like what we saw when he cast out demons, just like when he healed Simon's mother-in-law, news keeps spreading over and over and over. The crowds are getting bigger. The requests are more frequent. Jesus' days are more and more demanding. After all, he is human. He gets tired. He gets weak. That's why Jesus makes a point to withdraw to desolate places from time to time and pray. But now it's not just regular old people like me and you who are starting to hear about Jesus. It's not just regular old common folk who are starting to come to him. At this point, even the religious leaders are starting to pay attention. Look at verse 17 of chapter 5. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. So, the fourth example of Jesus' authority He casts out demons, he heals illnesses, he cleanses lepers, but here he even forgives sins. The friends of a paralyzed man bring him to Jesus. That's a lot of work to carry this guy all the way from his house to where Jesus is teaching. They're obviously banking on Jesus' healing. They're obviously confident that Jesus can actually heal the guy, or else they wouldn't go to all the trouble of trying to get through the crowd When they can't fit through the door, they climb up on the roof, they dig a hole in the ceiling, they drop him down. Again, they must be pretty confident, pretty faithful that Jesus can actually do what they're asking him to do. So Jesus has this discussion with this paralyzed man. Jesus heals the man ailment. The man gets up, he walks, he carries his mat home. The people are amazed. But before that, Jesus does something even better. Something even more impressive than a paralyzed man walking. He doesn't just heal the man's physical ailment. He heals the man's spiritual ailment. Apparently, Jesus really does believe that whole teaching of his from Mark chapter 9, 
That teaching where Jesus says, you know, you're better off entering into heaven crippled than walking into hell without anybody's help. Jesus apparently really believes that. That's why he forgives the sins of the paralyzed man. Now, you put all this stuff together, all these showings of power and authority. It's a pretty impressive resume. Casting out demons, healing illnesses, cleansing lepers, forgiving sins. I mean, who can argue with that? Clearly, this Jesus really is the anointed one from Isaiah 61. He doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk as well. Well, in spite of all this stuff, all these mind-blowing things that Jesus has done, some people, they'll still oppose him. Back in Nazareth, a few verses after his hometown was so proud of Jesus, they were marveling at the gracious words coming from his mouth. Well, just a few verses later, they tried to throw him down a cliff, all because he wouldn't perform a miracle there. The religious leaders who saw this incredible event of healing the paralyzed man, they saw it before their very eyes. They'd oppose Jesus too. You see, they're more concerned that this drifter from Nazareth thinks he can forgive sins. It doesn't really matter how impressive his miracles may be. After all, no mere man can forgive sins. I mean, who does this guy think he is? Does he think he's the son of God? Does he think he's God's spokesman on earth? You add that to the fact that they're a little bit alarmed when they hear that he touched a leper. That's a clear violation of Leviticus 13 and 14. And as if that's not enough, Jesus then has the nerve to go and eat with tax collectors. I mean, come on, sitting down with sinners, having a meal with tax collectors, being seen with them, treating them like fellow human beings. That's not good for the reputation, Jesus. He doesn't fast the way John the Baptist and his disciples did. He doesn't honor the Sabbath the way others did. And not only that, he claims that he is Lord of the Sabbath, as if he's somehow above it. Now again, some people will see all these things, they'll hear all these things, these beautiful things occurring, and they will rejoice. They will worship. They will recognize that good news is being proclaimed. Captives are being set free. But other people, they might not rejoice. Because when Jesus does these things, when he casts out demons, forgives sins, defeats illness, all this stuff, Jesus is putting them in an awkward position. He's putting them in a position where they have to choose where their allegiance will lie. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Jesus invites fishermen, regular old people, to join with something a whole lot bigger than that day's biggest catch. In verses 27 through 32, he invites Levi, the tax collector, the scum of the earth. He invites him to join in too. He invites people way back then to declare their allegiance to him, to be all about his father's business, even though lots of other people are drawing battle lines. Now, you know, you look at today, and you look back then, and to be totally honest, things really aren't all that different. Back then, the kingdom of God was being preached, 
today the kingdom of God is still being preached. The world still seems off. Things still seem wrong. Something seems missing. And yet it's still being proclaimed that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is coming. It may not look like it yet. There may still be all kinds of problems, but through Jesus, a new era has dawned. A new age has come. Back then, captives were still looking for release. People with fevers, people with demons, people with leprosy were looking for some kind of hope. We're looking for some kind of deliverance. And that's the same case today. People today are still held captive by all kinds of different things. People are still looking for some kind of liberty, some kind of deliverance. And Jesus today is still granting liberty and granting release to captives. Granting release and freedom from the consequences of sin and rebellion. Because he would live And he would eventually die on the cross, a sacrificial death, and rise from the grave. And just like back then, right now, this very day, fishermen like Peter and James and John, regular old people, today, lecturers like Levi, people with sketchy background, with Jesus, to declare their allegiance to him. At this very moment, you are being invited. Today, their allegiance to Jesus. And just like back then, today there is still opposition. There are still battle lines being drawn. There are still people who will not give Jesus the same respect that even the demons give him in the Gospel of Luke. The question is, who are we? Where do our allegiances lie? Will we follow the anointed one and truly believe that he is ushering in God's kingdom? Or will we oppose him? Will we be skeptical? It might not mean throwing Jesus down a cliff like the people back at Nazareth. But maybe we just shoo him away. Leave us alone, Jesus. We kind of like hearing about you every now and then, but all this stuff about your kingdom coming and good news to the poor, that seems a little bit extreme to me. Who will we be? Will we declare our allegiance to Jesus? Will we journey with him? Because at this very moment, he's inviting us to take the next step down that path. Let's pray. Father, it's good to read and good to be reminded of the power of your son, Jesus, that he sets captives free. And God, sometimes we look in the mirror and we try to tell ourselves that we're not held captive by anything, that we're not paralyzed or maybe we're not sick or maybe we don't have demons or... Whatever, you name it. And yet every single one of us has a problem. That problem is sin. 
And God, thank you that you came not just to heal people, not just to make people feel better, not just to address people's problems in this life, but you came to forgive sins and address people's problems in eternity. Father, thank you for that. We thank you for your son who we're learning more and more about each week that goes by. Each week, Luke tells us something new and something different. And I pray that as we read the Gospel of Luke, that we would have a more complete picture of who your son Jesus is and what exactly it is to follow him. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet declared your allegiance to Christ, if you are still dealing with captivity and oppression, talk to one of our elders. They'll be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, happy to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus and who Jesus really is. So as we sing this last song, take a few moments, pray to yourself, pray with one of those guys, whatever it is that you need to do, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.